You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Bow with me for a word of prayer, please. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this promise that the Lord is with us, and we pray for him to be with us today. Help us to make disciples. Help us to be faithful disciples who make disciples. Strengthen us for having heard your word preached, save sinners, and bring backsliders home, and Please anoint the hearing and preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. This text of Holy Scripture is known as the Great Commission, and it is when Jesus commissions his church to go out and make disciples of all nations. This is the second part of the Great Commission. Last week was the first part of the Great Commission. Last week, was the reunion of all the 11 disciples on the mountain in Galilee where they worshiped him. He asserts his universal dominion and jurisdiction over all the earth, having bought his people by his very own blood. And in Matthew 4, we learned last week that Satan offers Christ the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. Well, here, Jesus receives what Satan wanted, which was worship, And Jesus claims what Satan offered, which is the world. So this is Jesus receiving worship and Jesus claiming the right to the entire world, and not just the right to the entire world, but the right to the worship of the entire world. Today, in today's text, verse 19 and 20, Jesus instructs, the disciples to go into the world and to gather his kingdom from all the nations. So essentially to take the nations for Jesus Christ. This is his commission to me. It's his commission to you to go and take the nations for King Jesus because they belong to him. Now, I have an outline for my sermon, but I have a rather lengthy introduction because I'm going to spend some time giving some Old Testament background to our text today and then defining the term disciple before I go into my outline. So bear with me for this rather lengthy introduction. I want to demonstrate before getting into the text that what we see before us has some very significant background in the Old Testament. So, the Lord claiming the nations is his own and telling his disciples to go and take the nations is not a new concept, but it's something that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and something that um, was very familiar to Old Testament believers, even on the first few pages of Scripture. For example... In Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And so God's promising Abraham in that passage that he will be made into nations, and as he's made into nations, kings are going to come from him, and this is fulfilled in Christ especially in today's text, as Christ sends his disciples out to bring in the nations. And so as the descendant of Abraham, Christ is fulfilling God's promise to Abraham to bring in kings and to bring kingdoms under his lordship. Psalm 46, verse 10, similarly says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So again, This is a theme that's in the Old Testament. It appears dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I'm just giving you two examples so that you see that this stream of thought is consistent throughout all of Scripture. 
that Jesus Christ is King of the nations and that all the nations belong to King Jesus. And so when he gives this great commission in Matthew chapter 28, this is not a new thing. This is something that we've been waiting for for the whole Old Testament, that the kingdoms would belong to the Christ, the son of David. And in fact, Matthew opens with this concept in his gospel. Just as he's closing with it, he opens with it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And of course, Jesus being heralded as the son of David means he's the heir to David's throne. He is the king who reigns in David's stead. And he is the king who will receive all the nations. And so Matthew even opens with this concept that comes up so clearly in the Old Testament, and that is that the Messiah is the king of the nations. He's the ruler of the nations of the earth, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So Matthew, even in Matthew 1, as I just said, begins with declaring Christ as king of all because he is a descendant of David, the king. And he ends with telling his disciples to assert and advance that kingdom across the globe. He begins with the assertion that Christ is king and then he ends with calling the disciples to assert and advance this kingship of Jesus Christ around the globe. So that you and I, our heart's desire, I hope you share this desire with me. Do you not want to see the entire world, all the nations of the world, herald Jesus as king? Pay homage to him as king. Worship him as king. Uphold the law of our king. Do you not want to see that? And this is the Great Commission. This is it. Matthew begins with declaring Christ as king of all and ends with Jesus telling his disciples to assert and advance the kingship of Christ around the globe. Matthew begins, if you remember the Christmas story, with foreign kings, Gentile wise men, coming in to Bethlehem to pay homage and worship to the pay homage to and worship the king. So it even begins with this concept of these Gentile kings coming in to worship King Jesus. And Matthew ends with the disciples going and telling the people of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth, the kings of the earth to worship King Jesus. So this concept is consistent with scripture. It's been the promise, the fulfillment is in Christ, and it's consistent with Matthew. That's been the great theme of Matthew. That's why I called the series on Matthew, The King Has Arrived. Matthew begins with Satan offering Jesus the nations in exchange for worship, and Matthew ends with the disciples telling the nations to worship Jesus. So it is the theme of Christ's kingship even with the satanic interloper in chapter 4 of Matthew, the theme of Christ's kingship is consistent with Matthew, and the theme of Christ's kingship is consistent with all of Scripture. All the kings of the earth will come from the patriarch Abraham, and that is because all the kings of the earth will bow to Abraham's offspring, Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And this is the commission to go out and fetch those kingdoms, fetch those peoples, and bring them into subjection to Christ. Offer them full pardon for their treason and their sins by the blood of Christ, and bring them under his loving rule, his law of liberty. And so we continue that task today. You and I, this is our task asserting his kingship and advancing his kingdoms or his kingdom around the world. This is why the church sends missionaries around. This is why we herald the gospel. This is why we hope to plant churches. And telling the nations to worship him by the process of Christian discipleship. Christian discipleship. 
So I've showed you some of the background that leads up to this so that you don't see Matthew, 18, or Matthew 28, 19, and 20 as some isolated little text. But really, the full flower of seed that was planted in the Old Testament many thousands of years ago. This is the full flower of those prophecies. All their promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. Discipleship. This happens by discipleship. You and I, Christians, our Christian brothers and sisters, go out into the world and we make disciples. And the emphasis of our text today is discipleship. The discipleship of the nations. And if the emphasis of the text today is discipleship, which it is, I should probably explain what discipleship is. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples. And every verb in that text, first sentence of our passage today, verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, every verb hinges on this verb, go, or sorry, on this verb, make disciples. Even the word go is subordinate to the phrase make disciples or the command make disciples. So that is the main focus of our text. Every other verb in the Greek language, which the New Testament was originally written, is subordinate to that commandment, make disciples. So that's front and center to our text of this morning, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. And if I'm going to talk to you this morning about making disciples, I should probably define what it means. Because like I said, the most important verb in our text is that verb, make disciples, that imperative, that commandment, that demand that Jesus gives to the church, make disciples. And everything revolves around it. So what does it mean to make disciples? This is what I'm talking about. I've got an outline that I'll give you in a few moments. But what does it mean to make disciples? Everything comes from this in our text. William Hendrickson, I gave you a few definitions. William Hendrickson said the term make disciples places somewhat more stress on the fact that the mind as well as the heart and the will must be one for God. It's... Discipleship is bringing the mind and the heart under submission to God, to Christ, is king. It's bringing the whole person into submission to Christ. That's what discipleship is. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, your mind, your heart, your will, your whole person is being brought into submission to Christ. Matthew 22, verse 37 gives us the greatest commandment. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, right? So that is the greatest commandment of our Lord, and that's what discipleship is. Everything is being brought into submission to Christ. That's discipleship. You miss this, you miss it all. Don't miss this. This is our goal as a church. This is my goal is your pastor, is to bring the church and the individuals of the church, everyone here, myself included, into full submission to Christ so that there's nothing left over. He has everything. That's what I hope to see. So much more in this than just getting people to profess faith in Christ, isn't it? So often uh, Christianity has been cheapened. It's been cheapened by just vain attempts, manipulated attempts to get people to say a sinner's prayer. And I'm all for salvation and repentance and faith in Christ, but the goal of Christ is not to get some people to take some magic pill of a sinner's prayer. But the goal and the aim of Christ is to bring people into full submission, discipleship. John brought us the... Southern Baptist theologian of the 1800s said, to disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he has or what he says is true because he says it, 
And submitting to his requirements is right because he makes them. You understand this? All of us, for all of Christ. Are you a disciple? And, and what this means when I ask you, are you a disciple, and I tell you you need to be a disciple, is it means that all of you must be given to Christ. All of your mind, all of your heart, all of your will belongs to Jesus, and you're joyfully and thankfully giving it to Him in full submission. And churches that don't emphasize this are failing, dismally failing. So many, you wonder why so many churches are so weak today. They only emphasize a sinner's prayer. They only emphasize, maybe they don't emphasize a sinner's prayer, they emphasize right doctrine, and I'm for right doctrine. You know that. I teach, I try my best to teach it. But if, if Christianity isn't deeper than the right intellectual assent to orthodoxy, then it's not Christianity. Because even the devil believes the right things about Christ. Your right doctrine and your knowledge of orthodoxy should point you to the one of whom it speaks, and this is to the Lord Jesus, so that you would be truly a disciple of Him. And so many get off, and it becomes about the forms of Christianity as opposed to the person of Christ. Or some churches will only emphasize the personal experience on emotional highs or kicks or personal testimonies. And it never goes beyond that. It's always about the experience, the experience, the experience. Well, of course we're going to experience the Lord. But if you want to get down to it, the reason we experience the Lord is because we, in all of our thinking about all of life, are being brought into full submission to Christ as disciples. Hope you understand this. The mission of the church is to bring the entire person, mind and will and heart and body, into submission to Christ. And that mission transcends all national boundaries. It extends to all nations. So that our mission is to bring every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth into full submission to Christ. Wouldn't that be a wonderful earth to live on? Could you imagine what that earth would be like if men, women, and children of all colors and all languages and all cultures walked with Jesus and knew Him and delighted in submitting to Him. That must be our goal. And that goal's got to start here with us. And so we want to see all brought into submission to our King by faith, to enter into His kingdom by receiving His free pardon for sin, His free offer of grace, and then make disciples of all nations. So I'm still talking about this discipleship concept. I'll get to my outline in a minute and go through a few points here. But I'm, I'm really trying to emphasize what this means. Because I, f I, f I think so many miss it. So many miss it. And they get off and it's the one little aspect of it. It's, it's the whole person. It's all of God's thinking. All of God's teaching being made to bear on the whole will so that the whole will is bent towards him. This is what we need, and this is what we need to see. And, and Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Some people, there's some argument between what all nations means, of all nations means. Some think this refers to calling the elect from the nations, or some think that it means bringing individual nation states to make them Christian nations. And so there's a little bit of debate on that. Does this mean preaching the gospel so as that we call the elect from nations and disciple them, or does it mean that we make the nations into actual Christian nation states? I don't really think it matters how you answer that. I don't think it really matters. Because Christians won't settle for just a few disciples in a nation. Christians want to see the entire nation turn to Jesus Christ. 
And ultimately, Christians want to see as many disciples made as can be made so that the discipleship campaign is an aggressive policy of changing nations by changing individuals. This is Christianity. This is what we are as about as a church. We are on, we have an aggressive policy as a church. To what? Change our community by changing individuals. And changing our nation by changing individuals. And changing the world by changing individuals. How? By preaching the gospel and discipling the people. Matthew Henry captured this well when he said that Christianity should be twisted in with national constitutions, that the kingdoms of the world should become Christ's kingdoms and their kings, the church's nursing fathers. This is the goal of the Great Commission. And when Matthew Henry says that the, the kings of the nations, the governments of the nations should become the church's nursing fathers, what he means is they become like fathers to the church because God would in such cases appoint the governments of this world, the kings of this earth, to see their primary task is defending the church. Just like a father in a home, he would see his primary task is defending his wife and children and caring for them. The governments of this nation are commanded or of this world, are commanded to see their primary task is protecting and defending their most important asset, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what happens when Christianity takes root in a nation, and it goes deep, and as Matthew Henry said, it becomes twisted in with the national constitution. And so this great commission starts with making disciples on an individual level. But as disciples are successfully made on an individual level, we don't settle for that. We want to see so many disciples made in a nation that the nation itself starts to take on Christian characteristics so that itself is changed. And this was what was prophesied in the Bible, by the way, in the Old Testament. Daniel 7, verse 14, I've referred to this text many times. It says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Wouldn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture? Where the kingdoms of this earth have become the kingdoms of our Christ. And our job as Christians is to go out and teach and preach so that it might be so that all nations, that all peoples and all nations would come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've said so many times in this Gospel of Matthew, God changes the heart, the heart changes the person, and the person changes the world. So how do we do this great job? We do it by discipling one person at a time. The world is changed by discipling people. So, having defined discipleship, that's what I just did, especially the discipleship of all nations, I offer to you an outline. So here's my outline from, from here forward with three points. This is how we do it. These are the ingredients to discipleship. Number one, we baptize. Number two, we teach. And number three, we trust. Baptize, teach, and trust. Baptize, teach, and trust. These are the three ingredients to discipleship. So let's look at each one of them individually. Individually. First, we baptize. This is the first part of disciple-making. Jesus says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's this commandment, make disciples of all nations. And just like the word go is subordinate to the command make disciples, so the word baptize is subordinate to it. 
And one of the ingredients to discipling the nations is baptizing the individuals of those nations, baptizing them. Baptism symbolizes the purification from sin by washing. When someone goes in the waters of baptism, it's symbolic purification from sin. Baptism identifies us with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that when somebody is immersed in the water and raised out of the water, they're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The immersion helps us identify with that. It is, a, it is a statement that we have died to ourselves and we are now living for Christ. So, so actually, the act of baptism is a statement that we have died. It's, it's, it's telling the world we're dead to ourselves and we're living for Christ. And you, if you've seen baptisms, how we do them, you know that it's right under the water and up out of the water. When you push, when you force somebody under the water, that's usually not, in most situations, it's not a good thing. That's how you drown somebody, right? And, that's, and that's, that's intentional. Baptism itself is symbolizing that the person being baptized has died to himself, to herself. It's symbolic that we will rise from the dead one day as Christians, just as Jesus rose from the dead. After we die, we will rise from the dead. And baptism is an oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ, our King. So this is, we are to baptize. And as you know, probably, that there is some debate amongst churches over how baptism should be done. Some think you should sprinkle people, some think you should pour, and some, like us, teach that you should immerse people under the water. Well, I believe that you should immerse people for a number of reasons. One is that it best demonstrates this dying and resurrection that is symbolized in baptism. That's why one reason you should immerse people. Another reason that we should immerse people is in the baptism is because the Greek word baptizo, from which we get our English word baptize, is the English, there is really, the English word baptize is not a translation of the Greek word, it's a transliteration. It's just anglicizing the Greek word baptizo. And the Greek word baptizo typically means to immerse. So if there's a ship out on the sea and the ship sinks, that ship is baptized in the Greek language. Or if you have a, a white piece of cloth and you want to dye it purple, you baptize it in purple dye. It's, it means immersion, not pouring or sprinkling, immersion. So I believe we should immerse. It's interesting that Amongst the proponents of sprinkling are often Presbyterian or Reformed people who would hail John Calvin as one of their most important teachers. And I have so much regard for Calvin and have benefited from his notes and his books over the course of my ministry and studies. But what Calvin says about the mode of baptism is very insightful. And I want to point you to what he said especially if some of you are from the more Reformed or Presbyterian persuasion. Calvin said, But whether the person being baptized should be wholly immersed, and whether he should only be sprinkled with poured water, these details are of no importance, but ought to be optional to churches according to the diversity of countries. Yet... The word baptize means to immerse, and it is clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church. Now, usually Calvin doesn't, as you read him, he's, very, he's a very good thinker and he's not full of contradictions, but that's a contradiction. It doesn't matter how you baptize people, but baptism means immersion. It doesn't matter how it's done, but the early church, the New Testament church, surely did immersion doesn't give us any reason why it shouldn't be done that way. He just tells us that it doesn't matter how it's done. Well, in the interest of being scriptural, in the interest of upholding what the Bible teaches, and in the interest of being faithful to the word baptize and what it symbolizes, we immerse here. Because 
We believe it means to immerse, and that best captures what is going on in the baptism ceremony. And this baptism is to be done, as Jesus said in verse 19, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say in the names of, plural, then say that. It says in the name of, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, because there's one God and three persons, three persons and one God, not the names of, but the name. And God is one and God is three. He's Trinity. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. But yet the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Each person being equally God, yet each person being a distinct person. This is the mystery of the Trinity. And we are to be baptized into the name of the Trinity, into the name of the Trinity. And even at Christ's baptism, all three persons of the triune God were present. As Christ was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove, and the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so this is baptism. Have you been baptized? Because this is important. Have you been baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ by immersion? If not, why not? Because this is a fundamental aspect of Christian discipleship. If your goal is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ and to walk in full submission to Him, why aren't you submitting to Him in this aspect? You need to be baptized, and we have a baptism service coming up on Easter Sunday. So now you are without excuse. Get baptized. The biblical way, by immersion, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we can talk to you more about that. If you talk to one of the pastors after church on Sunday, today, or you contact the church office, we'll talk to you more about that, but you need to be baptized because this is one of the key ingredients, and we don't want to miss the key ingredients of discipleship because if we don't give our whole hearts and our whole minds and our whole wills to God, we're not disciples. We want to be disciples. So we baptize, and not only do we baptize, but we teach. This is the next ingredient here that we're given. We teach. The teaching is very important. Jesus tells us that here. We teach. We teach. Jesus says in verse 20, again, this verb teaching is subordinate to the word of make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Them, teaching them. Well, who are them? Well, them are the ones who have been baptized. The whole man is baptized. And therefore, the whole man must be taught, and the whole man must submit to the teaching, the whole person. And so this is an immersion in the teaching, in the commandments of God. We're supposed to be completely immersed in God's teaching, even as we are completely immersed in the water. And how many pulpit ministries lack this? This is, there's a dearth of this in the land. Biblical Christianity is, is really, if you're discipling people and you're teaching people how to be Christians, what is it? It's teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. How many are lacking this? And, and they're afraid of telling people to do what Jesus says because they're afraid of being called a legalist or something like that. But really, this is Jesus' commission to us. And so if we're not teaching people to obey everything that He's taught us, we are failing. And I think that the great commission of Matthew 28, as we wrap up Matthew, is a great springboard because of this to start the Ten Commandments next week. Because the Ten Commandments become the basis for all the teachings of Christ as far as what we should 
be doing, become the foundation for it all. And the faithful ministry of the church is a teaching ministry, teaching people to think as Christ would have them think, teaching, teaching people to talk as Christ would have them talk, teaching people to act as Christ would have them act, all of this. But yet how many pulpit ministries neglect this and replace it with stories or apologies or monkey shine and claptrap? How many of them do this and just tell dumb jokes that typically only elicit laughter out of a sense of duty or sympathy? So much of the church is given towards this, and it becomes a total waste of time, complete waste of time, lost an hour where people could have been taught how to obey Jesus, and so often, in many cases, the churches aren't just not neglecting it, but they're giving people really nuanced ways to teach them why they don't have to believe Jesus or obey Jesus, and are undermining the work and authority of Jesus Christ. Well, biblical Christianity and a faithful ministry of the church is about teaching people to obey Christ. Obedience to His commands. Obedience to His commands. Obedience to His commands. And this is the case with the pulpit ministry. It's my goal. In my sermons, do you know what my goal is? It's to get you to think like Scripture would have you think. And carry on like Scripture would have you carry on. And act like Scripture would have you act. This is, this is my goal as I read the text for myself and then as I deliver the text to you on Sunday morning, I've got one goal in mind, and that's to bring the whole congregation into submission to Christ. Anyone who will listen, that's my aim. And this should be the case in our children's ministry. If you're a parent in the church, you should be concerned that any ministry that you put your children in should be centered on this, and you should know what's going on in the children's ministry. You should be asking questions and discerning. Is this children's ministry teaching the children to obey Christ, to know His gospel and to love Him? Or the youth ministry, how many youth ministries are about getting kids worked up and sending them home with a sugar high, right? But that's not what youth ministry is about. Youth ministry is about teaching youth to obey Jesus Christ and follow Him. Or the school. We have a school here, King Alfred Academy. You know what the primary objective of our classical Christian education is? It's not to give kids knowledge. It's to cultivate virtue in their hearts. Teach them to obey all that Christ has for them. That's the primary method of education, and so many education systems have lost this so that you see education with one aim in mind. Teach them to get a job. Teach them they've got to get a job. Teach them. Look, if you foster and cultivate virtue in the heart of a child, that will produce the creative ability and the critical thinking ability that will be able to go out there and create jobs find work, make themselves useful. But so much of education lacks that. And so if you're going to send your kid to a school or you're going to homeschool your child, make sure that this is foundational to it. It's the cultivation of virtue in their hearts, that the love of Christ is preeminent in any education that you expose your children to. This has to be foundational. And if you're sending them off to Rome to be educated, don't be surprised if they come back as Romans, right? Don't be surprised. And we need to make sure that this discipleship aspect is foundational to all of our parenting, all of our schooling. And the goal 
is to produce people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just in the church, but in the community, in the nation, in the nations. Our work is not done until the world is brought into faith and obedience to Christ. I think it'd be a beautiful thing to live in a city where most people obey Jesus Christ and want to obey Him. I think that'd be a beautiful thing. Not for my sake. I fear that too many want that because that would make their life easy. I think, and that's terrible. I hope that's not just so you make your life easy. But because Jesus is worth it. That's why. So many just looking for an easy life. Yes, that would be a lovely and delightful place to live for me personally. But most importantly, because I want to see Jesus made much of. And I want to see him glorified. And our work's not done until we have taught peoples and nations in the world to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Everything. That's our job. Our work is not done. It's your work. That's your job. And I think you ones with children, that's your primary mission field right now is the little ones in your home. Is to make sure that they know the Lord and have every opportunity to know the Lord and that they know what it is to obey the Lord. And you can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you don't go. So you got to make sure you know the Lord and you know how to obey the Lord. And then you can faithfully disciple people even as you are discipled. So we've looked at this ingredient to baptize people. We talked about that. And then this whole ingredient to teach people. We talked about that. Now look at this final ingredient to making disciples. This is to trust. To trust the Lord. This task of going into all the nations would have been daunting for the fledgling church in the first century. Jesus has these guys up on a mountain in rural Galilee with the Roman Empire kind of shadowing over them, towering over them. And now Jesus is telling this fledgling group of 11 fishermen and so on, country bumpkins, to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. Do you not think that would be a daunting task? 11 men. Now you just go out in all the world and make disciples out of all those people, the billions of people, and bring all of these kingdoms into submission to Jesus Christ. That sounds daunting. And the only way to do this is to trust him because of the hope that he's given us. And look at what it says in verse 20 at the end of it. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's telling us there, this is important. This is how he ends Matthew. Ends on a real high point. He remains present with us by the person of the Holy Spirit. His presence with us should cause us to trust him for victory in our mission. Him being with us is not just a statement that he's with us. It's a promise, and it fosters hope in our hearts. A confident hope, not a shaky hope, but a sure hope. As John Gill said about this text, he's promising that he would be with them in a spiritual sense, to assist them in their work, to comfort them under all discouragements, to supply them with his grace, and to protect them from all enemies and preserve them from all evils. And the emphasis on this sentence is on Jesus saying, I am with you. It's his statement that he is with. That's the emphasis. It's emphasize, I am with you. And in the Bible... God's presence, when, when God tells people to go out and take nations in the Old Testament, His presence is a guarantee of success. Hope you caught that. His presence gives power and gives success. I'll give you a few examples in the scriptures here where this happens. It happens all over the place. But if you look at Exodus, for example, 3, verse 12, it should be up on the screen. This is where Moses is doubting whether he can take on the Pharaoh and lead the people out of Egypt, the greatest nation on the face of the earth then. 
And God said to Moses, he said, but I will be with you. How does Moses know he's going to be successful? Because God says, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on the mountain. Another text I want to look at, and that's the book of Joshua. When God told Joshua to go conquer the Canaanite nations and, and take those nations, go into the land of Canaan and take the Canaanite nations, how did Joshua have confidence that he'd get the job done? Well, God would be with him, and he says this in Joshua 1 verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so Joshua can enter the Canaanite nations with the confidence that he is going to conquer them. Why? Because God is with him. And so when Jesus tells the disciples to go make disciples of all the nations, and then backs that up by Jesus saying, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age, there ought to be a, a hint, well, maybe an emphasis of confidence that we will fulfill that commandment. It's, it's like Joshua being on the, the cusp of the promised land. The disciples are on the cusp of the nations. Just as God tells Joshua, I will be with you when you take these nations. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I will be with you when you take these nations. And so there should be within the Christians' hearts, the Christian heart, when we look at the Great Commission, there should be a level of optimism. And you can look around and you can say, well, things are falling apart all around us. Well, yeah, they sure are. Even that much more reason to be confident that God will be faithful to His promises and that God will be with His people as we go out into our godless nation and the nations of the world to make disciples of them, preaching the gospel and teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So there is hope in this, and because of that, we trust. So we make disciples, how? Baptize. Teach, and we trust. Missionaries need to be sent around the world. And we need missionaries in this society of ours. When the modern missionary movement started, the English-speaking West was largely Christian. And so you had networks and networks of faithful churches that could send the missionaries to all the heathen lands. Well, now our lands have become heathen lands. And the bottom's given out, and so there's much work to be done. In this country, even as there's much to be done around the world, but as things are in shambles around here, even as we are concerned about sending missionaries around the world, we should be very concerned about sending missionaries to our own neighbors. And this is why I believe in church planting. This is why I believe in starting Christian schools, classical Christian schools. This is why I believe in discipling people, and this is why I think that your biggest job, most of you, have, any of you who have children, your biggest job is to disciple your children, to teach them the things of God and cultivate virtue in their hearts. That's your most important mission field. And, you know, what's interesting is we, we did start a school here, and we're hopefully going to add grade 11 and then eventually grade 12, so it goes all the way up to the end of high school. It's interesting, if you start a school some other continent like Africa or Asia, people will say, oh, that's a great missionary work. But if you start a school here, it's really hard to get people into that mindset. But you don't think with all the filthy, terrible things the children are being taught in the schools in this community that it's, it's not a missionary enterprise to start a school that teaches children to think properly in this community? That's very much a missionary enterprise. You're training a generation of children that are going to be able to stand for Jesus in a world that is becoming increasingly apostate, looking more and more like a nightmare every day. 
and then teaching the little ones to walk with Jesus. We plant churches. We hope this is why we pray that God would raise up pastors. Maybe God's calling some here to be pastors and plant churches and preachers. This is what we need. So if God's calling you to do that, submit to that call. Stand up for the challenge because it has to be done. And we as a church have experienced so much growth in the last few years. And we really, having experienced this growth, it's a wonderful thing to grow as a church, but we need to be faithful to disciple all of the new Christians and all the people that need discipleship. Teaching them to what? Obey all that the Lord has commanded. And that's why I want to teach the Ten Commandments for the next little while, because that will be a wonderful opportunity for people to learn what the Lord has commanded. And maybe you on an individual level, I think some of you are discipled Christians, many of you are, and you've been walking closely with the Lord and you're mature in your Christian thinking and your outlook on life. You should be looking for new Christians or people that need discipleship even within this church and building relationships with them and helping them in that regard. You should be thinking in your mind, who can I invest in that would benefit from a relationship with me? So many come to church and just wait, well, maybe someone will invite me out. Maybe someone will get to know me. And what your mindset should be, who can I help? Who can I help become a better Christian or a more thoroughly discipled Christian? How can I contribute to this task that Jesus has given me? To go out into all the nations and make disciples. Because this is our calling. This is our calling. How are you contributing to this? You should be raising your children properly. You should be giving financially to the work of the church. You should be investing in other people who need to grow as Christians or need to be converted. And your mind should be seeing life as the fulfillment of this right here. This is, this is our goal. This is why Jesus came. This is why Christ has purchased us, so that we would go out and we would make disciples out of all the nations, bringing all men, women, and children to full submission to Jesus Christ through the good news of his gospel. Let me have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray to you, and we thank you for our Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would please move with power in our lives and you'd help us to be faithful in the advancement of the Great Commission. Use us to plant churches and win souls and disciple people, we pray. Would it be so, Lord God. Amen.